Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. All right, I'm Amos. Uh, I don't know if I need to introduce myself. I never do. Why am I introducing myself now? Okay, Amos King. Um, and we have a special guest today, but I'll, I'll let that go here in a minute. But with me as... Most of the time. Pretty regularly, <laughs> almost always, maybe. Sean yeah, I'm, I'm Sean Cripps. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, this coffee is so good. Mm, coffee. Right. <laughs> so you guys going to introduce yourselves, or are we just going to be Yeah, here? yeah. So, I don't know if you want to say call hi. me or not. I was like over here just waiting <laughs> to be like told to speak. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like being in a circle of people in the hallway at a conference and sometimes somebody might pull you into the conversation. Sometimes you might need to jam yourself in there, or find a new group, which usually yeah. if you walk into a conference setting and you find Sean and I standing there, probably better off to go find a new group. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay maybe myself. not. I, I'm going to insert myself in right now. Go for um, it. Do it. Uh, I'm Zach. I work at Ramp. I'm a software engineer there. I've been doing Elixir for a little while, so I'm excited to be here and get to talk to you all. So what for those of us who don't know, what, what does Ramp do? What is your Ramp, product? Yeah, so Ramp is a spin management automation platform. Essentially, our goal, our, our slogan is uh, time is money, save both. We want to help the CFO suite uh, be able to close their books faster, more efficiently, um, have smarter spin controls by issuing corporate cards that have very fine-tuned limits on them, um, assist with your bill pay. We even now have a product called Float, which is almost like a, a very short-term credit line for those kind of co companies that need just a little bit of a cash infusion to get them to the next uh, cycle or whatever. Um, so yeah, we've, we're about four years old now. Uh, I've been there for a year, year and a half or so, working on the Elixir side of things. Um, but it's been it's been going good. I like it a lot. That's great. Nice. I, I thought you said spin control. Yeah, it was like, like a spin. Is, is this like a spin PR class? <laughs> <laughs> or that or PR? Yeah. Uh, so, so Zach, you've been even. I know you've been doing Elixir longer than that year and a half because you mm -hmm. were at Pepsi before this, and then we worked together at Toyota. Mm -hmm. So, and, and was Toyota your first, or did you have something before that doing Elixir? So, Pal and I were doing Elixir at Vinley, so pre-Toyota for maybe three or four months uh, before Vinley laid us off. <laughs> but uh, I think Toyota was probably like our first foray into just full-on Elixir. So, yeah, it's after that six years ago, I think something like that. Nice. So it's old hat now. Yeah, you could say that, but it, you know, I'm sure that other engineers feel this way where you start like in the itch to want to try something new. I'm like, oh, that looks like a cool little thing to try. And I go and try it and I'm like, yeah, but this is just already part of the, the language. And it looks like, why am I going to go find like a package to pull in? How do I get, how do I get my, uh, you know, dumb things like migrations, right? Like it's so annoying to try to figure out how to do stuff like that in another language. You're like, oh no, it's just here. It works. I don't have to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. the first place I ever saw migrations was I think rails mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then was still super surprised at how many other languages didn't just hop on and build that same thing. They were like, nah, that's, that's a, that's not a useful tool. <laughs> like, I don't get it. It's so, it's so straightforward, intuitive. It feels like, um, yeah. 
stuff like that. Where it's like that, nah, I'm I'm comfortable. I'm good. I'm gonna hang out here for a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah, on that on that note, Amos, just be grateful you don't have to write your own migration system. Yeah, in Rust, in any language. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever do that? I just no, but we have we have our own bespoke thing in TypeScript at my uh, right now. Oh man, oh. I'm sorry. I've been writing a lot of type TypeScript um, over the last like couple weeks. So we, I was, I'm working with Alex Kautmos. Kautmos, uh, man. Oh yeah, I've known him too long to mess up his last name. I'm sorry, Alex. And Sean froze. I think. Okay, Sean's back. So we released a, a library, uh, Deno X, Dino X, however people want to say it. I, I pushed for the name to be Sinclair and use the Sinclair <laughs> gas station symbol, but. It turns out somebody still owns that symbol, so it it allows you to run TypeScript and JavaScript in the in the Deno um, runtime, which is super controllable and pretty secure. So you can turn off access to well, you you actually have to opt into everything like environment variables, network access, mm-hmm. um, and you can even set it down to individual environment variables, individual files, read and write access are separate. So it's hopefully allows some use of that community's work within Elixir projects and, and maybe as a gateway to get some some of those people working in Elixir. So nice. we're just trying to turn Elixir into the glue that holds the entire world together. Like duct tape. Used to be, used to be duct tape, right, <laughs> and now it's Elixir. Well, we need a physical and a digital equivalent, so we'll use both. That's right. <laughs> Elixir, the duct tape of software. Or, or we just petitions or shows A to rename the language to duct tape and be done with it. <laughs> oh, a rebrand. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't work. that what, what Deno is? It's a rebrand of Node. Yeah, it's like, it's like they took two letters from the end of Node, cut them off, and put them on the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Perfect. it's the same letters. They yeah. did like shift, shift right twice. <laughs> and and same creator. Yeah. yeah. They have a they have a framework called Oak, which is just Koa respelled. I guess mm. it's just Koa reversed actually. But it's the same idea. Same exact thing, just in Deno. Yeah, they like to they like to Wait. mix the letters. <laughs> is Koa a web framework also? It's the successor to Express. Yeah. Okay, okay. I know Express. I'm old. Gosh. Yeah. Um anyway. <laughs> They say it is, but everyone says Express that I'm, that I'm aware of. So I don't know if mm-hmm. it just never took off or if Express is just too successful. I mean, I left yeah. that world a long time ago. So yeah, everything I still hear is Express and um, Next JS. Mm-hmm. That's front um, end, though, isn't it? Is it well? So it's like I, everything. Oh, okay. Yeah, my my understanding is like Next JS is like build your application out of lambdas, kind of, which mm-hmm. I think is just broken already, mm-hmm. but. Uh, my experience with lambdas is that they're good for background processes that you don't have to have be performant or anything, and they get expensive. Yep. You what was Amazon? Did you guys right. see the article on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's making rounds on our on our Slack. Oh, it's it's because it's. I have I have a I have a friend who always wants to write everything in lambdas, and I send him that, and he's like, "Well, I don't I don't really get it," and he's he's going to call me out because he listens sometimes. Um, are, are are these folks but, who who have never deployed an application on a VPS no, he, like you know slash host or something back in the day? I I think it's scale. Okay, he's he's not 
when he's done lambdas is not at a large scale. Oh yeah, that's that's enough, a sweet spot. enough to where it gets expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there's this like nice area where you can do it almost everything in lambdas. I still don't find them performant enough, but yeah, there's there's the there's the startup time that it can like compound if you have uh, too much traffic going to them, and uh, and then they don't they also have like. Uh, some arbitrary limits on on how long they can be live in general. So so like they can take I don't know what it is like a hundred invocations or something. I don't remember. There's there's some limits sure. on them. I remember hearing somewhere I mean, that someone was using one lambda to call another lambda to like ping. Yeah, keep itself running. <laughs> oh <laughs> keep man, pinging back and forth. Yeah, the the what is it heart. See, create a lambda that's heart that all it does oh, is ping all your other lambdas. Heart that the the program that makes it impossible to exit Erlang. It's it's yeah. like it's <laughs> it's like it's Emacs or Vim or something, except it's for Erlang. <laughs> you can't exit. You're locked in. <laughs> Trapped. That's how I got out of Vim the first time I got into it, is I just rebooted the computer. Because I, I also did I, gave up I didn't know computer. how to background things. <laughs> you gave up on the computer. You're like yeah. I'm New computers, computers <laughs> I can't type. I can't quit. What is going on? It froze. That's what happened. <laughs> oh, so, okay. Uh, so, Zach, you also gave a talk mm-hmm. in Lisbon. I did, yeah. So, oh, a couple weeks ago. So, um, tell us about that. So, Not the yeah. talk. I don't care about well, that. Tell, tell us about Lisbon. Lisbon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much better, yeah. And, so are, and then and then we'll get to the talk. <laughs> so Lisbon's great. This is as our third time to Lisbon. My wife and I. I'm always Brazilian, so we we like that place a lot. If uh, it, it fits the need of being able to speak Portuguese and a lot of the similar culinary things. But for those who haven't been to Lisbon, imagine like a uh, a cheaper, more beautiful California. The whole country <laughs> sits on the on the west on the west coast of Europe, right? In the same way California does for us. And it's got all the same climate, all the same kind of things going on. But it's just, I just looked it up this morning. It's only uh, 11 million people in the whole country. Whereas, you know, like New York City is almost nine. So the whole city spread out across the country. So you got a lot of space, a lot of greenery. You're doing stuff in the ocean. You're like eating delicious food, walking around all the place. They have delicious pastries, which is my weakness. Mm. I want a pastry every place <laughs> I go. <laughs> but uh, we love Lisbon. Lisbon's amazing. I highly recommend it to anybody. So you told me that there's there's some kind of food that your wife loves that you just can't get on board with, though, right? Yeah, it's called bacalhau. It's a uh, salted cod, so it's got a real fishy flavor, and I am not down on that. <laughs> I am, I'm, I'm venturing into fish more, but no, I used to just be like a meat and potatoes kind of guy. So <laughs> it's taken some time. The, the Italian have Italians have that too. It's called bacala. So basically yeah. the same word. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, it's power. They have like, I think something like 99 different ways of making it. There's a ton of style. There's a couple of ways that like I find edible, but <laughs> it's, that's as charitable as you can get yeah. <laughs> edible. I didn't say that I when can, I was there. I was afraid, but yeah, You're like I can swallow this one. That's yeah, it's pretty okay. good. <laughs> I'm not gonna order it again, but I'll eat it. <laughs> Oh, wait. all right. So, so you're giving so a did talk. you do anything yeah. exciting other than the talk while you were there? No, I mean, we just did, we try to keep it easy. It's kind of like a vacation beforehand. So we just 
chilled, went down to the beach, uh, did like a sailboat. I mean, anything you want to do on the water, you can do. So they've got lots of water sports, surfing, stuff like that. I didn't surf this time, but I've done it before. And it was, it was great. Mostly it's a city that you just go and enjoy because it's so beautiful. It's green. It's got parks all over the place. They got a really nice waterfront. So you just relax, enjoy that European style life. Sweet. Yeah. Right. I knew so, I should have gone. Hmm? <laughs> I told you, you could have came and supported me. <laughs> My wife might have killed me. She could come too. Yeah. That's true. We just got to find some place to duct tape our kids for a week. <laughs> I hear you can use Elixir for that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> a good callback. Good callback, Sean. So what? All right. So I guess maybe maybe we can talk about Elixir and the talk now that now that I'm thinking about nothing but sailboats and salt water. Mm. So <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's uh. Yeah, so the talk was the talk, I think, I, it was my first talk I've ever given, so I don't have a lot of uh, comparison <laughs> to say if it was good or not. I was super nervous going into it. Uh, at the speaker's dinner, I was sitting between um, the two guys working on the type system. So Giuseppe and, uh, uh, I hope I got his name right, Guillermo. And so I'm sitting between these two, like, PhDs. <laughs> and little old me, who went to a boot camp, is here just hanging out. And uh, I was feeling real nervous. But uh, I got up there. I was, a, I was the second... I was the last uh, track talk before the final keynote, so I had a long time to wait. But gave it. I thought it went pretty good. Uh, people seemed to really enjoy it. You know, asked them a lot of questions. Basically, my subject was uh, telemetry and how we're using it for business metrics at uh, at a ramp. It was particularly within my service an authorizer, which we could talk about if you want. Yeah, so I'm just trying to show some examples of how we were like, how do we determine? How do we solve some of our problems? Where we're like looking for. How is this thing performing? How are like, in, not in terms of like speed and latency, but more in the sense of like, we have various different code paths and how often are you hitting this one over the other one? Like there's one that we would prefer because we want some more performant, but we don't have a good way of like looking in and seeing and other than using telemetry to execute an event. Hey, we called the cache instead of calling the, the, the query, right? And so we want to get that kind of stats out and see how we can optimize what we're putting into the cache to make that far more efficient. So stuff like that, we were, I was just showing off and people seem to really resonate with it. So it felt, it felt good to be able to, to do that. That's it's, great. Uh, that, that ratio thing there of like cache to not cache and stuff like that. That like, are there any, so that to me, that's what I look for in metrics is some kind of ratio, something that I can, cause you know, like, Oh, I hit the cash five thousand times. Well, yeah, but how how many requests did you do? Like mm, yeah. that might be that might be one tenth of a percent. Mm -hmm. um, it's a feel good metric. So, what are like some other things that you've learned about dealing with those metrics? And is there anything in particular like to pick a good metric that you go for? It really does come down to like how it's compared to what you want. Like like you said, the comparison. Like so for example, I'm rolling out a new feature now. And this new feature is, I'm running it in parallel with the current system. Let's try to find a way to explain this. Essentially, when a request comes in, it goes through a very like linear process. We check for some fraud rules, we check for some permissions, then we check that you make sure like you're running against the rules that have been set for that particular card, right? Like you're within balance, you're within category, whatever that thing might be. And so it's one, two, three, always in the line. And we'll exit early if like you fail something. But I realized that using like uh, a dynamic supervisor, I could create a bunch of workers that would go 
in parallel instead of doing it literally. So now instead of waiting for the longest one plus two others, whatever that might be in terms of length and time, excuse me, um, I can just take the max time, right? Because now I'm just fanning it out across the three different sets of checks we have to do. Uh, and in doing that, I want to see how this is performing versus the way we're doing it in terms of are they matching, right? And so I am using the same, I'm using telemetry just to put up a, a really quick metric. I'm watching it and seeing how it's going. Um, and it's something like, I don't have the right percentage. It's one out of every thousand that maybe there's not a match, which is significant, but it's easy to like look into and figure out why. And I wouldn't be able to know that if it wasn't for a couple of events coming out and being able to figure out like, okay, what's going on here? Why is this one different than the other thousand? And typically it's like a little race condition within ourselves that isn't an issue. So stuff like that, I think is really important. I mean, you can do a lot of vanity metrics. You're right. Like, Oh, I want to see how many times I'm calling this. Well, that's not particularly helpful. <laughs> it's, it's gotta be in compare. It's, it's gotta be compared to some, some, some goal that you want to see or, uh, or if it's, Something that could be really important to know in the sense of we also have a lot of events around fraudulent transactions. And so seeing if there's a certain type of fraud happening more often within a window, right? Like that's the kind of thing that we need to know. Uh, and we can do some database scans on that. We save that. Uh, but if we just have the event, it's in a dashboard that we're looking at and watching and saying, okay, right, that last, last hour we had a huge spike in people trying to do I don't know, luxury good purchases out of nowhere. That's kind of like a, that's a red flag. Someone's probably got a hold of something. Let's take a look into it. Stuff like that. So you're, you're processing through fraud and stuff. Uh, authorizer, uh, it's, is it, it's credit card processing. That's what it mm -hmm. sounded like, right? Yeah. So does that have some pretty hard time constraints then? Like you have to answer quickly. Yeah. Yeah. We have, uh, we have two different issuers that we work with uh, right now. I think we're rolling out to the third soon. And we have a two-second SLA with them, um, which feels like a really long time in computer world. But when you start doing a bunch of, like, summing and aggregations across some of these companies that are really big, it can actually – we've run over many times. Um, so part of my job has just been, like, optimizing those. Excuse me. And um, that's where a lot of uh, these telemetry events have come in handy as well. But that's just normal, like, tracing stuff, right? Like, where's my slow point? Where's the thing that's really eating up our time and – drilling into that. Uh, but you're right. We do have a, a really, we used to have a really hard time limit where they were like killing the connection right at two seconds, uh, which sucks because we would lose our tracing data. Uh, and then we'd have no idea what happened, but we got around that and now they're letting it run, but they, they cause an error to the user if we don't respond, um, which we go into something called commando mode, which is a really cool name. Um, <laughs> but it's not a good situation to be in. It's yeah. like, <laughs> It's like, like no commandos. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, if you swipe your card and we don't respond for whatever reason, um, they're going to make a very arbitrary decision. If it's over a thousand bucks, we deny it. If it's under a thousand bucks, we approve it, which completely blows our business model like out of the water, right? Like we're about spend control, and if we're not controlling the spend, then we've got issues. And so, yeah, it's it's a big deal to make sure we're hitting these SLAs. And that's why we use Elixir particularly for this service is it helps us to do achieve those kinds of things. You look like you had a question, Amos. I thought you had one. So no. I shut I'm up. Just... <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned telemetry. If you, it got cut off, then you lost your telemetry data. Mm -hmm. like why, what, 
what technical, what hurdle causes that, causes that loss? All right, is getting me on my depth. Let me see if I can understand this right. Um, <laughs> it's a test now on me. Basically, we're using spandex before mm-hmm. for all of our tracing, um, which I'm pretty sure under the hood. So the, right now, the two big ones on the, on the on the market are Open Telemetry, which is like a a spec more than anything across all a lot of languages, and there's Spandex, which I've seen a lot of as well. And both of them, I believe, under the hood are using telemetry. So you're getting kind of the same deal either way. Um, from conversations we've had with the spandex maintainer, uh, I think open telemetry is kind of preferred in the if you're starting something new and going that way. Um, but the actual event of losing tracing data comes down to the Phoenix connection will get closed and it won't catch that event. And so the trace never gets wrapped up, uh, which is, but if you go down to the cowboy level, cowboy is going to be emitting something because um, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a, I don't, know, I don't remember why, but there's something at the cowboy level that's cat that's catching this and emitting like a closed event. Um, spandex is only hooking into the Phoenix layer. If you use open telemetry, they have a cowboy, a cowboy listener that you can install really easily. And that's going to get you access into the, like the very low level, right? The way that's the actual server that's running and you'll be able to catch those events. And so putting that in place, let us, it will capture, it will capture all the traces up until it closed. Um, so if there's like one trace that, doesn't show up that's the trace that probably caused the problem um because you lose that one still because that'll die but well, at least now we have like at least something to tell us this is the story up until this point so open telemetry lets us get a little bit deeper into what's happening they're mostly the same api so it's not it wasn't a really hard migration um there's a few gotchas along the way but for the most part it's basically the same thing i think the uh the big thing with open telemetry is that um it supervises the, the app itself supervises some processes that own an ETS table and like mm. all your spans go into that ETS table until they're flushed to the collector. Um, so I don't know what spandex does, but, but like I could see, um, you know, bef- way before open telemetry and open census, we had problems collecting metrics on some things just because they would, they would crash. Yeah. When mm-hmm. the, when the socket closed and, and you didn't get any information out of it. And so it was really hard to debug unless you're like on that, uh, like on the shell or something uh, with Redbug or, or Recon or something. Yeah. yeah, it was driving us crazy for a little while to figure out like what the heck's happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas I didn't even know that was a thought. I was like, I had no idea that you could do that, that you could just like kill a connection and even <laughs> Phoenix wouldn't like admit anything. Like I assumed right. Phoenix would let us trap, but there was nothing. Uh, and so it took us a little while to figure out what was going on. I feel like that's a an opportunity to add to Phoenix to, if that dies, to admit something. I don't know. I don't. I don't know enough about the architecture inside of Phoenix at that level to say whether it's easy, difficult, complete rearchitecture. I don't know. I, I <laughs> maybe I just quite, couldn't find it, so I don't know. Maybe it's yeah. Not me. <laughs> I, I think the problem would be deciding where you put that. Um, like, how yeah. much do you expose it to to users of the framework? Because I could see situations where if you if you let them if you let them catch like fatal errors, so to speak, of of the like at the TCP level or something, um, you know who's supposed to handle that? Um, mm. And and I think probably handling it in Cowboy is the most or whatever web server you're using is the most sensible place um, because the things above like Phoenix shouldn't have to care about the sockets themselves or like That's, the yeah. HTTP protocol other than the semantic level of it. Um, 
so yeah, I could, I could, I could see how that could just snowball pretty quickly if you if mm-hmm. you're exposing that kind of recoverability to the consumers of of that API. I mean, even if you're just admitting your own events for those, you still have to start capturing every yeah. <laughs> single possible event and re-emitting it, and then. Yeah. Moving on, yeah. It feels like a foot gun for sure. Like you're yeah. gonna shoot yourself a lot. <laughs> Best not to even let that out there. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, it's it's good though that that they have the telemetry um, in use at so many layers of the stack there, so you could get that visibility even if you didn't have it before. Yeah, I think it was one of the things I was most impressed by as I was working on this talk and just through everything is it's such an easy tool for a package maintainer to kind of set up because it's more or less, you know, it's, it's robust, it's Erlang, right? So we know it works. <laughs> and so the number of packages that are already emitting events that you can listen to uh, is crazy. And so we're so well instrumented, we don't even know it, I think, in some ways. Like, if we just hook into those things better, like, we we have more insight than, like, so most of our code base, and this is a, a sad admission to make, most of our code base is in Python at Ramp. We have a very large core mo- uh, monolith that's all Python. And I feel like our inspection and things is better because we have all these events that we can look into. Um, obviously, our error handling is better as a language. Um, so that's that's great. But this other layer on top of it, this telemetry layer, makes I think it much easier to try and metric and look into what's happening without a whole lot of like weird overhead on top of it. I try to stay away from the Python code base uh, as much as possible. I try and stay in my little world. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you literally get a question you looked up. Oh, I can like I did. And then... Well, I, I, I wrote down add telemetry events to the DenoX library because I didn't put any in. And I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's, shame on you. That's, easy, <laughs> that's e- easy to do. Why didn't I just add some events? It's the consuming part, uh, consuming all those events that's actually the complicated part of, of telemetry is like mm-hmm. figuring out which ones you care about and making sure that you actually have an end to your spans whenever you put those in there. Okay, mm-hmm. And where do they, that, where do they go? Like, you know, are you just yeah. collecting metrics? Are you creating tracing spans? Um, are, are they relevant to tracing? Like so, sometimes you might have something going on in the background that has no request associated. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's yeah. Uh, that was a question I came up a couple of times after the talk is not, I mean, you don't have to use a telemetry events for tracing. Right, like it's mm-hmm. it's just an event. You can do whatever you want with it. So if you just want to log, I actually use it a lot for logging. If I want to hook up something right. in an event and log it on the on, on the side, and I can rip it out when I'm done testing it. That's what I use it for. Right, it's an easy tear down and whatever to get start and stop events. So a lot of people were kind of confused and they kept thinking, like, okay, what what, what are you tracing? What are you tracing? How are you doing tracing with it? Well, Columbus is an event dispatch. Whatever mm-hmm. you want to do with it after that is up to you. If you just want to emit events into the ether and no one's listening, like you can do it. It's not going to affect anything. No cost. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's no cost to it. So, yeah. And I, I think that's, it's probably a good um, remedy for, gosh, so many apps I've seen that do too much logging. Like people just throw log statements everywhere without being concerned about the volume or the relevance of them. And if, yeah. if you just do events from the beginning uh, with telemetry, you, you can selectively turn those things on and off by mm-hmm. whether whether you dispatch to something that logs and um, and you don't necessarily have to understand the context all the time. Um, so and you can hop into your production and programmatically turn them on and off. Yes. Too. Yes. You can have yeah. it send you events to your console <laughs> while you're <laughs> yeah. show me all the. Yeah. Sounds safe. 
(laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, if you find something is logging so much that it's starting to degrade performance, you can hop in and just say, take that handler out and be Mm -hmm. done with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's that's another thing that kind of came up as well. Like, just because you're emitting emitting, uh, events, they're not necessarily asynchronous. It's Mm -hmm. still like a synchronous process that's in band with your current PID. So don't think that you can just, like, offload something, like, real heavy into an event and it's going to like churn through it on the side and some process. It's not, it's still your same main thread or whatever. Yep. Yeah. That's a good thing to point out. Cause I <laughs> didn't realize that at one point and was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do some pretty heavy math stuff whenever I get these events to, um, I don't remember why I was doing it. And I think I was like looking for extra data to log so that I could get more context and then realized I was, Hanging, hanging the user out to dry while they were waiting for their <laughs> response. So, the other thing that got me was when you have an error in a handler, it just goes away mm. and like, Detaches, telemetry yeah. takes it out. Detaches. And it, I love that, and I understand why. But part of me is also like, mm, could I could I configure that like a like a gen server failure? Like if this happens three times in five seconds, then pull it out of the list. But I I have debated back and forth on the benefit versus the cost of doing that and whether it would be worth it or whether we should just leave it well enough alone. You could probably, it's super hacky, you could create a gym server that listens and counts how many times it's detached and reattach it because it's just Ooh. a it's just a function to call, right? So if you wanted to like queue up some counter, all right, I've got three more on this in my bucket and then just reattach myself. Yeah, like a... That circuit breaker, yeah. throw a little circuit mm. breaker on it. Yeah. Dang, Zach, look at that. You just solved all my problems. <laughs> I yeah. Can go about my day now and be. I, I don't know. I, that, just saying it out loud made me scared. I don't know what could <laughs> go wrong with that. So you take it. You either solve my problems or help help me create more. <laughs> it's on you to manage. Yeah, but like I, I think. I agree with you, Amos. It's it, it can be frustrating when you're like, why did this thing detach? When you know what what happened that made this thing go away from the from the list of handlers? Uh, but like the the alternative, at least the old alternative, was well, you send all the events to one process and it handles them, which we all know is a bad prop bad mm-hmm. situation. If you're like even even the Erlang logger switched to um, you know producer side handling. Uh, of log um, messages. So, so like, because they know the old one, the old OTP logger was, was a, like a gen event and everything went through it. And yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's been decade over decade now, but one of our first production problems on react was our, the logger was backed up um, and could, couldn't, couldn't flush all of its um, mess log messages to disk. Oh crap! Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, it's just one process with a one point five gigabyte, you know, heap. It's fine. <laughs> Get that long mail, that really long. Yeah, like even in, even querying the mailbox length took forever. So, <laughs> me, I think that's I think that's one of the things it says in Erlang and Anger is like get the count of your mailbox before you decide to yeah see what's in your mailbox. <laughs> That's smart. That's definitely <laughs> smart. Hey, if you haven't read that book, it's awesome. Yeah. And it's free. 
Another shout out to friend of the show, Friday Bear. Yeah, yeah. That's that's my talk coming up for um, Gig City. Is really this will come out way after that, so maybe it'll be on video and somebody can see it and make fun of me. But it's it's really like where telemetry and IO inspect and DBG and all that where they end and where you end up needing something more like recon or, or red bug and, and like all the tools that Erlang gives you to introspect a system that's running mm. in, in a production safe way. Some of them, some of them are not. And so that's being good shepherds of our code. How do we, how do we make sure that we're taking care of our sheep when they're out in the field? Cause sometimes you can't reproduce those problems locally. Yeah. You know, like the backed up logger. Yeah. Pro- that would probably be <laughs> tough to do locally. Yeah. That's a, that's a common problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like, I think I, I came to Erlang and Elixir because of OTP and all the processes and everything. But then the deeper I've gone into this world, the more I'm like every tool that I need is out there just about and in much better ways than I would have built it myself because it's been worked on by very smart people for years and improved and improved like the current logger, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we had problems with it and they made it better. Um, So why not lean in on that and take full advantage of it? It's also nice to have a good, I think, pipeline to the people who work on OTP um, like that interaction maybe wasn't so good a, a longer, longer time ago, but now like there's a really good feedback loop and, um, and they, they collect this, these sorts of stories, figuring out ways to, to make the whole ecosystem better. And I think that's, that's, that's really good to have that, that sort of, and it's still, you know, the community's small, uh, in comparison to other, other language communities. So, so that it feels, feels really personal and, and you can, you can get to know um, folks who are working on the beam <laughs> at Ericsson. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's small, but in in a lot of ways, small but mighty. And yeah. I, you know, and it is it is growing. But I, every time I see it growing, you know, some languages I've been involved in in the past, as the community grew, I was like, oh, this is getting bad. Mm-hmm. It's not good. Um, JavaScript. Um, <laughs> but I feel like as the Erlang ecosystem, I'm going to say ecosystem Mm -hmm. because it includes all those languages as it's grown. I've, I feel like it just keeps getting better and better, right? Like we got the right amount of spice in there and, uh, not a lot of salt on our cod. So (laughs) (laughs) good reference. (laughs) Nice callback. It's getting better. (laughs) I try. Yeah, I think uh, I also just really appreciate how we we really grow intentionally with our stuff. Like you can use older versions of like every time you upgrade your elixir, like you know you're pretty much going to be safe and not like breaking anything, right? Like it's it's never removing a lot of things that are going to fall apart on you. You're always safe to keep going. And I think Jose's even said something about like there's no reason really for a V2, right? Like mm-hmm. we're going with V1 and a couple you know minor updates on there. Um, which is just makes you feel safe that you know that I remember one time I was, I was upgrading our image to the next version of Elixir and my boss was like 
be careful with that. You know what's going to happen. I was like, well, pretty much guaranteed nothing. nothing's going to break. What are you afraid of? Yep. Yeah, I think that was man. How long? How long ago was that? I think it was still Seattle when he gave his talk and said Elixir's done, and you know, being able to put the tools in place to build all those extra features and outside libraries um, so that you can pick and choose which one works best in your situation instead of mm -hmm. having the language dictate what your situation needs to be mm -hmm. is at first I was like, what does he mean? It's done. But you know, <laughs> after, after some time to think about it, it's yeah, that was, that was yeah. a brilliant move. <laughs> and, and that means that really like the core language just, solidifies and and you can improve the performance of the core language without worrying about a new feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge to make something of that size uh, be stable over the long long term. Um, I think I think like they've done an admirable job of it. Um, and having what is it every six months having new releases every six months like having a regular cadence on that um or is it every year i forget <laughs> but I, i've never paid attention to yeah you just like get the new out. one yeah. it's fine yeah. <laughs> it feels like a year but you might be right about six months somewhere um, in there but yeah like having a regular cadence to it um having no breaking features like that 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 takes a lot of a lot of effort to do that well mm -hmm. i think the the only other community I've seen do that well. Um, and they, their release schedules like every two or three months or maybe less, um, is rust and they like, you can still run programs that were written on 1.0. Um, even though it's like 1.70 now almost, mm. <laughs> I don't think they're going to have a two either. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's nice to see that stability. Um, so I, you know, like I, I did Ruby for a long time and I felt like, a lot of times a new release of Ruby came out and it mm -hmm. changed syntax or broke something or, and yeah, I don't, I, I never thought about it exactly. You just brought it up, but yeah, I don't worry. And I was always one that said, as soon as something comes out, we need to upgrade to it anyway, because it's a lot easier than trying to upgrade four versions mm -hmm. at once. Yes. Like, so get on it. But yeah, like most of the time it comes in, I might have a couple deprecation warnings and I try to take care of those right away. Cause I don't, I hate seeing them. Yeah. And then I move on. RCI checks for So it's great. Oh yeah. Nice. And well, and I, I have dependencies that I know have had deprecation warnings for like two years mm -hmm. and the dependencies aren't making them, but the language isn't not supporting them either, which is, is really nice. Yeah. I remember. So one of the things they announced in this one was the, the work of the, the PhD students on, the type system at this this conference and that was another situation where they like they intentionally spent i think it was like two years working on this and really thinking through and planning i think the video might be up now i'm not sure it definitely will be out by the time this is released uh, but they spent a lot of time just like thinking through how can we use this in a way that if you want it it's there if you don't want it cool it's going to work either way Right. And it's going to fit all the use cases that we need as Elixirists. Right. And just the thought and the planning that went into it. two years of research to make this there. And now they're proposing it. That was kind of like their formal proposal at the, at the conference. And they'll take all the feedback on it and they'll go and apply it. And so there's like that kind of care is really nice to be able to see it being done. 
as you're working on something that is highly, in our case is highly critical, right? Like there's mm-hmm. millions of dollars that move through our service. And so I don't want to have the, the risk of something like completely breaking, um, because of this, some, something that was thought like un, that was done thoughtlessly. Yeah. I think somebody once told me that, you know, sometimes you need to build a bridge out of wood, right. And that's fine. And sometimes you need to build it out of steel. Hmm. And I, uh, you know, I feel like a type system is kind of like building with steel. Like you're trying to, trying to reduce the chances of anything happening, but sometimes that's just not what you need or want. Mm-hmm. Right. Got a little, little tiny bridge that one person goes over and just walks over every day in front of their house. You don't need to build that thing. It doesn't need to be a $5 billion steel <laughs> cable bridge, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope, I hope that that type system stuff is able to, you know, work out for people and they are able to apply it without disruption. Zach, maybe you Find had bugs. some, some insight. What's, what's like, the difference between their proposal of a type system uh, and using something like Dialyzer, do you know? Do they address that? Or The big thing with theirs, it looks like it's more expressive than spec, uh, than the spec. So you can get a little bit okay. more things in there. It follows, it's very similar. Like I really like that they use the same kind of terminology, a lot of the same basic types that are already in, in the language. You're gonna, it's going to feel the same writing. I think instead of like a, an ad spec, it starts with a dollar sign hmm. above the function, potentially. Um, that might just be the proposal. I don't know what to actually build out. But the big thing was it seemed like at compile time, it's going to check your stuff. So dialyze is optional, right? And even if it fails, then you can turn it off. Um, this is going to like explicitly check your code at compile time to make sure that you are passing all the things you say you're going to pass, that your specs line up. Um, and it has a way, they introduced something called dynamic, which I'm going to have to play around with it to fully understand it, but it seems like they give you an option where if you are, have a function that's well-specced, it's calling another function that is not, sorry, not spec, type defined, and it's calling another function that is mm-hmm. not defined, it'll kind of infer and give you the benefit of the doubt with a dynamic instead of trying to like just break. Um, but it does seem like it's going to really lean into this kind of forcing you at compile time to make sure that your stuff is done right. It even infers based on the things that are being passed around mm-hmm. as well as it can, that, that this is what it's, do, it's doing, what it says it's going to do. Um, it looks like guards are going to be more popular as well, because if you're doing like a win is integer, mm-hmm. right? Or when mm-hmm. is binary, you're like explicitly stating right. with your code that you're enforcing that. And so it makes the, the type check even more powerful, uh, that was kind of the biggest gist I got out of it, but there's a lot of cool features they built into it. So you can define, you can be pretty lenient with what you define and even in terms of like function heads and, and the different ways in which you can like, if you're passing a Boolean or an int or whatever, mm-hmm. there's different results you expect out of those type of um, inter, uh, uh, inputs. So it was, it was really well done. I thought. Did, did so they, once you put, Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, did they say anything about uh, exposing that inference to um, to developer tools. So, so like you say, like I've written this function, I don't know how to type it. Um, mm. like that was one thing that there was a tool and it sadly only worked for Erlang because it only worked directly on the source, which is really frustrating. Um, but it, it was built off the same stuff that dialyzer was, it would figure it would infer the types of your functions. 
I know that in, uh, in VS Code we have Elixir LS mm-hmm. or LS, mm-hmm. which, which one's called. They that does that pretty well. Um, I don't think at this point right now they've just been showing off the, uh, the proposal, the research they did. The next part will actually be productionizing it, right, and making it mm-hmm. something that we can we can truly use. But one of the things they did talk about at the conference was really leaning into uh, developer friendliness and working really closely with people who are building developer tools so that we can have a more integrated environment. Um, that was one of Jose's big keynote topics was how do we like work with the, the maintainer of these, uh, these language servers and get them all that they need and talk to what they're looking for. So I'm confident that it's going to be exposed in the same way. Yeah. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Now, now all I need is the ability to call between all of the languages on the beam. So if anybody wants to do that work out there so that then my typed Elixir can call to my typed Gleam and my Gleam can call to my Elixir and my Erlang can call to both, that would be pretty sweet. So if anybody wants to put in that work (laughs) out there, (laughs) you should send in a proposal to the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation and maybe we can get you some some monies to help you support you in that. You need to know a lot about build systems. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> nose goes. <laughs> Zach putting his finger on his nose. Not me. Not me. <laughs> oh, look, it's Sean. Yeah. Sean, it's your turn. I, I figured it would end up being me. <laughs> you could write it in Rust. Um, um, no, no thanks. <laughs> Sean's been doing a lot of rest. Yeah, and as much as I would love writing it, I would not want to <laughs> to be trying to integrate that with the Erlang ecosystem too. Honestly, shout out to Louis um, for writing his compiler for Gleam and Rust because like that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but uh, <clears throat> yeah, um, I don't know. I I think I love writing compiler like stuff, so I th- that might be fun too. But um, why not just do it in one of the languages that's already on the beam? Or make up a new one. Or, yeah, or make a new one. <laughs> that's what we need. <laughs> More languages. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I better get some work done today. Uh, I'd rather stay and talk about mm-hmm. this all day, but i got to get going. Yeah, i got a day job. So. Yeah. yeah. Mine's yeah. about to At start. <laughs> Zach's at ramped. Sean... <laughs> Sean's at Fable. Yep. And I'm a binary noggin. I don't know. Maybe we'll all get something done useful today. Hopefully. But I I just came away from this talk with a whole bunch of stuff to do on the library that we just released. So, fun. Good. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I do want to say that library being released is thanks to Alex and his company, Eagle MMS, for trying to make sure that they find things that they're going to do that they can open source to the world mm-hmm. instead of trying to keep it into themselves. It's mm-hmm. pretty awesome. So uh, just a quick shout out to them. Thanks, Alex. All right. Well, I'll see you all later. Thanks. Later. See you. Have a good day. <laughs>